0: Hello and welcome to the All-80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the precious decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Nasek. Hello, Jason.
1: You must have been so afraid, Cassie. Then you saw a cop.
0: Hello listeners, it's October, so we have the most unoriginal idea to discuss all horror movies this month. It's our second annual Splatter Cinema Month. Our second movie we'll be discussing with spoilers aplenty is 1988's Maniac Cop, starring Tom Atkins, Bruce Campbell, and Lorreen Landon, directed by William Lustig. This movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 25 minutes. So, what's this movie about, What's on the Box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away,
1: Jason. New York City is terrorized by a series of brutal mutilation murders. The public is outraged because it's discovered that the killer is a cop. Innocent policemen are killed by the panic-stricken public. The city is in uproar. Will New York rid itself of this deadly menace, Maniac Cop? You have the right to remain silent forever, Maniac Cop. Wow,
0: that was the shortest What's on the Box we've done.
1: No question about it. It was short and sweet. I loved it. I loved it. It's so funny. There, I'm going to read this other tagline that I found on IMDb that just cracks me up. Here we go. He prefers to kill instead of protect. (laughs) I like that. That's a good one. But what I love is I enjoy doing this. I have to admit, just looking at the VHS box, the original, I try to find the one from the year it was released or as soon as the VHS copy was released. Just seeing that cover always brings back memories of walking through the video store and seeing it time and time again. And looking at the back of the box and then, of course, reading the synopsis and then transcribing it for this podcast. But at the bottom, you see a lot of the other information. And for Maniac Cop, you know, it says color slash 92 minutes slash 79.95. That's dollars. Wow. <laughs> it's like back in the day, man. That's how much a VHS tape cost. I know. Especially after watching this movie today, going... Can you imagine spending $80 no. purchasing this particular film? I'm sure it's a, maybe a, a collector's item for somebody out there if they still have it maybe in the package, in the box, and uh, in pristine condition. Yeah, probably. However, I just I thought that was funny. And on top of that, the fact that it says it's 92 minutes. And this film that we watched today, I believe it was the same for you, uh, at least for me. It was only 85 minutes. That is correct. And we'll talk about that, I assume, a little bit later. But, Bill, you have the right to remain unsilent because we have a podcast to do. Oh, Maniac Cop. That was the last comment I was going to make in watching the trailer because I always have fun doing it up here, uh, doing the, the What's on the Box segment and doing the voice, if you will, putting it on a little bit and... Listening to the old school voiceovers from these 80s trailers is always a pleasure because there is a subtle difference. And we're a lot of us are familiar with the uh, I can't think of his name, but the guy that did a lot of the movie trailers that had the voice. Right. He was in a world kind of voice. And the particular voice for this trailer was a little bit different. And he had a different style where it was just kind of short. It wasn't drawn out. So it wasn't like Maniac Cop. It was kind of truncated and staccatoed and a little more terse. It was just miniac up. And that was a very specific style of voiceover for these type of trailers for these horror movies back then. So anyway, as a, as a voiceover person, that's always fun to kind of pay attention to the different styles for the trailers back then. Let's get into it, Bill Bant. You ready to do this?
0: Yeah, let's uh, start with, as always, our earliest memories, which I think is going to be kind of tough for us, but let's, uh, let's talk about some earliest memories about
1: Maniac Cop. What do you have? Yeah, absolutely, Bill Bant. Big surprise. I've never seen this film. At the risk of being repetitive, once again, this was one that I passed by several times on the rack at the video store at Blockbuster. However, as I've said, ad nauseum, the slasher films just weren't my jam, but I'd pick it up off the rack, examine the front and the back of the box, and that was the extent of my indulgence, and although I didn't know the actor's name that portrays the titular character of Maniac Cop, I did recognize him for his signature jawline and for his supporting role in Tango and Cash in 1989, uh, and that actor's name is Robert Zadar. In the year that this came out uh, in 1988, I wasn't quite aware of Bruce Campbell. He wasn't on my radar because I wouldn't be fully exposed to the Evil Dead franchise until well into the 90s. But then retrospectively, I mean, later on, of course, I was made aware that Bruce Campbell was also in this film in 1988, Maniac Cop. So... I've always been curious about this film. I wasn't even sure if it had reached cult status, but when looking back at the 80s slasher films and the lists today online of cult favorite or classic 80s slasher films, this one kept popping up, so I thought maybe it was time to finally face off with Maniac Cop. What are your earliest memories of Maniac Cop, Bill Band? I am
0: not much better than you because I don't even remember seeing this movie at the video store. Oh, no? I really don't think until maybe Maniac Cop 2, Mm. but I don't know about Maniac Cop. And it was weird because when I was watching this, at one point I was like, wait, have I actually seen this before? I was like, no. Maybe a scene or two somehow, but I don't know where. So this was certainly a brand new first watch for me. I don't think I really was ever interested until, like you, the Evil Dead series and just... I wanted to see what else Bruce Campbell was in, mm-hmm. and this was one of them. And I think I confused this one with Crime Wave, oh, okay. which was directed by Sam Raimi. And I just assumed this was a Sam Raimi low-budget film also. So I think even when I was watching it, I was kind of surprised that I didn't see his name. But then we see him in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So that even confused me more. So I was trying to figure out how this all ties in. But um, I really got nothing when it
1: comes to earliest memories. This is the first time watch, and it
0: was an interesting one.
1: Absolutely, I'm I'm looking forward to breaking down this quote unquote cult classic slasher film.
0: So uh, yeah, that leads us into initial thoughts. So this is the first time for both of us. So what was our initial thoughts of uh, Maniac Cop? This should be interesting. Absolutely,
1: our initial initial thoughts. Yes, I always like to start with a brief overview of our main players and. One of our main protagonists is Lieutenant Detective Frank McCrae, portrayed by Tom Atkins. And the actor Tom Acton Atkins excuse me, had been in feature films such as The Fog, Escape from New York, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And of course, we know him as Michael Hunsacker from Lethal Weapon in 1987. That's really what I know him from. I can't say, I don't even know if I've watched Halloween 3 all the way through, I may be ashamed to say that, to be honest. But I definitely think of him as the, you know, the white-haired Michael Hunsaker from Lethal Weapon, because that's just one of my all-time favorites. So we have Tom Atkins in this film. And of course, we have Bruce Campbell, who plays Officer Jack Forrest Jr. in Mania Cup. And we know and love him, of course, from the Evil Dead films and the television show Ash vs. Evil Dead. He was also in Maniac Cop 2, had lead roles in The Adventures of Brisco County Jr. and Jack of All Trades. He had a reoccurring role on Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. He was the star of the movie Bubba Hope Tep. Bubba Hotep, as well as uh, having a reoccurring role in the series Burn Notice. He's still working today and he's always popping up in the Sam Raimi films, such as the Spider-Man franchise, of course, and and including Raimi's latest big studio film, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, in which he plays a street vendor named Pizza Papa. (laughs) He punches himself in the face repeatedly. It's pretty funny. He's always great, man. Always a pleasure to see him. We love him here at the All 80s Movies Podcast. Richard Roundtree is in this movie. He plays the role of Commissioner Pike. And Richard Roundtree, of course, is most famous for his portrayal of John Shaft in the Shaft movies and the short-lived Shaft series Uh, in the early 70s. There was the original Shaft in 71, then Shaft's big score in 72, and then Shaft in Africa in 73. Then that series shaft from 73 to 74. And then finally, we have, as I had mentioned, Robert Zadar playing the titular character of Maniac Cop slash Matt Cordell. So I'm going to give you a little background on Robert Zadar. Uh, He was well known for having an extra large face. For example, uh, he played the role of face in Tango and Cash. Uh, He was also the angel of death in Soul Taker. He was a smooth drug dealer in the outrageous The Divine Enforcer, and he was an abusive husband in The Rockville Slayer. Robert Zadar of Lithuanian descent, a former Chicago police officer. About that. He briefly worked as a Chippendales dancer. Uh, he was a singer, keyboardist, and guitar player for the Chicago-based rock band Nova Express, which was the opening act for such groups as Jefferson Airplane, The Who, and The Electric Prunes. Now, Robert Zadar suffered from a genetic disorder called cherubism, which causes excessive bone growth in the lower face, which was the cause of his enormous jawline. Unfortunately, Robert Zadar did suffer from a heart attack while appearing at his last fan convention, Pensacon, on February 28th, 2015, and was rushed to a nearby hospital where he spent four weeks under observation for an enlarged heart Unfortunately, he never recovered and died there from cardiac arrest later. But yes, he is well known for that role in Tango and Cash, but obviously here is the main antagonist in the horror trilogy, Maniac Cop, Maniac Cop 2, and Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence. Rest in peace, Robert Zadar. Now, getting into the real initial thoughts, got to start here, man, because speaking of the cast members, I'm going down the cast list on IMDb. And there I see the name of my wonderful acting instructor, Ken Lerner. I'm like, yes, Ken Lerner is in this film. How did I not know this? And I was just all the more excited to watch this for the first time because he's uncredited. But on IMDb, we know that he has played the role of Mayor Jerry Killiam. So I'm like, okay, great. I'm looking for him the whole time watching this movie. I'm like, what a pleasant surprise this will be until I actually watch the movie And he's not in it. What the F? Then I read (laughs) on Wikipedia and find this out, that later, in an extended version of this film, the mayor, uh, confident that Matt Cordell, the antagonist known as Maniac Cop, is dead, the mayor relaxes in his office, and after the mayor's assistant leaves his office, Cordell uh, silently appears from behind the curtain and murders the mayor as revenge for framing him. What? That's like a huge scene. And that's only in the extended cut, which I have still yet to see, of course. Now, we've mentioned my beloved acting instructor, Ken Lerner, previously when we did The Running Man on this podcast. And I have to mention this real quick uh, because I was looking at his IMDb and the guy's still working. God bless him. He's awesome. Great, wonderful character actor. And he had a featured role in episode nine of the hit Netflix miniseries, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. But yeah, he was in an episode entitled The Boogeyman, playing the role of Joe Zilber. Now, funny enough, speaking of Maniac Cop, which I didn't get to see him in, in Maniac Cop 2, Ken Lerner's brother, Michael Lerner, ends up playing the deputy commissioner. There you go. Small world. Yeah. Speaking of this film, the film we're talking about tonight. I love opening titles, man. Give me some good opening title cards. I thought this was cool. Cool opening titles, eerie music. We get to see the credits over these cool close-ups of someone getting dressed in the police uniform, someone donning the police uniform one article of clothing at a time. We get to see the white gloves go on. We get to see the belt go on, the buttons being buttoned on the jacket, the badge being put on. And it just reminds you of how powerful and commanding the police officer uniform can be. And we know this is going to be a slasher film. This is a horror film. So it's kind of intimidating and scary in this case, especially with the music in the background. So the imagery itself, I thought, was rather effective, a great way to start the movie. I just wanted to comment on that. Then we begin. The movie opens on the night skyline of New York City, and this is 1988. So we do see that image of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in That'll just always be a thing. I mean, when we see these movies, oh, yeah. uh, it's history. And that image will always be impactful, of course. I do love kind of the gritty street scenes that seem to somewhat be filmed on location, although very briefly actually filmed in New York City, as we'll probably comment on later. But still love it. It doesn't feel like it's a backlot for the most part. I'm like, oh, this they're actually shooting in a city. That's cool. I like that. And that's kind of where like my positive initial thoughts end otherwise feels like a low-budget film, because this has some clunky dialogue. A lot of it in the beginning is just awkward expositional dialogue. We get some wooden performances by Atkins, unfortunately, as Detective McCray, and Laureen Landon as Officer Teresa Mallory, whose character, by the way, is super inconsistent in this movie. Half the time, she's like this scream queen, and the other time, she's badass cop. All of a sudden, she goes back and forth. But yeah, the writing is just bad. It is fun to see Bruce Campbell, but the movie doesn't play to his strengths. Sherry North, who plays uh, the role of uh, Sally, is decent as like the crazed past girlfriend of the killer, the maniac cop. She's kind of very much the Mrs. Voorhees type of character, but in girlfriend form here. But the movie's kind of stale for me. Doesn't have a lot of... Uh, lot of uh, scares. It didn't make any logical sense most of the time. The concept itself isn't bad. I like the idea here because it could be really scary, but the execution isn't effective or impactful. That's my humble opinion. Just a medium amount of blood and some gore. Uh, So overall, Bill Bant, it was meh for me. Uh, Not a film I'll revisit soon unless it's the extended cut so I can see my guy, Ken Lerner, at the end. The best thing about this movie is the running time. Had I seen this as a kid, maybe I would have had some sort of fun, nostalgic attachment to the goofy nature of it. Unfortunately, that's not the case here. What are your initial thoughts of Maniac Cop?
0: I would say this movie is Friday the 13th in a police uniform. Mm-hmm. You could basically just take Jason, put him in a police uniform, and it's almost the same kind of character. Yeah. This movie needed a serious rewrite before they started filming. Luckily, I watched this twice. Even though the premise... I felt is straightforward. It still begged too many questions. It just seemed everything was pigeonholed to move the story forward. So Tom Atkins who plays
1: detective Frank McRae. I wasn't sure if he was a detective or not. I think it's technically Lieutenant detective.
0: And he has this first initial scene with uh, Richard Roundtree who's the commissioner and this is only like five minutes Mm -hmm. into the movie. And McCray already thinks that it's a cop that's going around killing people. And the commissioner says to him, couldn't it be someone dressed as a cop?
1: Impersonating a police officer?
0: Right. That's a logical statement. Even though we know the commissioner turns out to be kind of dirty, but that makes sense. No, it's got to be a cop. What? You didn't build anything to that point for him to be behind the fact that he thinks it's a cop.
1: There's been almost no investigation whatsoever at this point. He's just making blind assumptions. It doesn't make any sense. There's right. no way he would know that.
0: That's the way this whole movie felt like. Yeah. It was just pushing itself forward just to get to the end. And the whole time I'm thinking, all you had to do was just go through the script one more time. And you could have touched up on some stuff and really fixed it. And the real problem is, is Armenia cop? I still don't understand what he is. Amen. Hence why I say it's Friday the 13th. Yeah. Because... We find out that the maniac cop is an ex-police officer that for some reason is – see, I don't think I figured this out in the movie. I had to read all this in the research. Who is set up because he's very decorated, Mm -hmm. and I guess someone that he busts or a crime boss that he busts has some tie-ins with the mayor's office. Hmm. So they were worried that the mayor was going to be implicated, being associated with this mob. So they set him up and he goes to jail and he supposedly gets killed, but he's not really killed Right, and he somehow gets out. There's just too many questions. Not that you have to answer all the questions. I mean, still Friday the 13th, kid drowns and 20 years later, he comes out of the lake, still the same age, but two minutes later, he's a grown adult. Okay. That doesn't make any sense either. But for this one, where are you trying to go with this? I like the premise. I like the fact that it is, it's like, why did it have to be this zombie cop? Why can't it just be a regular ex-cop who's just mad about what's going on? And they play it that it's supposed to be revenge, but it starts off with him killing innocent people. Right. Why is he killing regular innocent people, but then trying to seek revenge on the people
1: that set him up? That made no sense to me either. I had a whole thing written out about exactly everything you just said. Absolutely. 100% agree. It doesn't make any sense. There's just questions because it's not one thing or the other. They kind of make it both, and it's very nebulous. Is he dead or is he not dead? Or is he the undead? And if he's the undead, how did he become undead? And then what is his purpose? I'll probably get into it in a little more depth, but please continue.
0: Just kind of listening to you talking about the acting in this. And what's hilarious, too, is, you know, you're saying Tom Atkins was wooden. I mean... There's definitely actors that are just terrible. And I think that sometimes makes it hard for me to watch a movie. Like, you watch a movie, and if all the actors are bad, I could handle that. But when there's levels, there's an actor that obviously can act, and the other one has no clue what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It makes things even worse. And there's two big scenes in that is the one. When Atkins is looking through Cordell's clippings. The
1: newspaper clippings, yeah.
0: Yeah, and the other officer comes in. They have that conversation, and it's so horrible. Because you can tell the guy who's playing the other police officer is just not a good actor, unfortunately. Uh-huh. And it just makes the scene worse because Atkins, even though you think he's wooden, is so
1: much better than the other oh, guy. Yeah. It's still believable. It's just so wooden that's all it doesn't even necessarily mean it's bad it's just very plain
0: and then the second one that really stood out to me was when forrest bruce campbell goes to the prison to speak with the medical examiner to find out what happened with oh yeah cordell and the medical examiner cannot it's rough and I looked him up, and I looked at some of his credits. I'm like, I guess he got better because he actually got some decent roles after that. I mean, they were tiny, tiny roles. But that was a rough scene, too. And it just takes you out of watching the movie. If you're going to be bad, be bad together. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can't mix and match. It doesn't It doesn't work. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I mean, I wouldn't be any better. I'll admit to that. Put me in the scene with the coroner. Then it would, it would work out a little bit. We'd even each other out. <laughs>
1: Right. We're looking for some consistency here. And I totally agree with you. I, I feel terrible whenever I'm judging another actor's performance because God knows I am not the best actor in the world, nor have I even been consistent in my performances in the work that I have done. You have good days, you got bad days. And I applaud these actors for getting the job and, and doing and trying to do their best on the day of. However, sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and uh we're entitled to our opinions and that particular scene with the medical examiner at uh the Sing Sing Penitentiary uh was a little rough for that actor he got a little better towards the end of the scene when he gets a little upset with how the interview i guess is going but
0: i felt like he threw a little baby tantrum there what are you doing
1: yeah i thought that that's a good observation though the the performances were unbalanced I lose focus when that shit sure. kind of stuff happens. It's a good call. Um, anything else for initial thoughts? Nope. That was it for me. All
0: right. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some favorite scenes and moments we had from Maniac Cop? All right.
1: Let's do it.
0: Outside of the officer getting dressed.
1: <laughs> I thought that was cool. I thought that was really effective.
0: I did like it. I hated that they kept pausing it.
1: Oh, doing the freeze frames every time a, yeah. a title would come up or a credit would appear. That I didn't like. Yeah. I like the subtle creepy music as well as you could hear in the sound design, just the, the very soft sound of the actual material going on the officer. And then of course, like the leather of the belt, uh, being latched or the, the gun going into the holster, you know, it, and it wasn't overdone. It was just like you could hear it. There was something very eerie about it, but for my first favorite scene, and I'm, I'm going to say it's kind of my favorite scene. I just. It was a little bit of a a reach here for me personally to find some. I I, I didn't particularly enjoy this film. So I was like, okay, there's got to be some positive stuff here. And I will say that I did enjoy the cold open to a certain extent. Uh, We meet cocktail waitress Cassie and she's calling it quits for the night. She is leaving the bar where she works and she exits by her lonesome and we see a city street scene and we're thinking well this can't be good a young attractive lady walking in her skirt and high heels uh, in the middle of the night and of course she's walking along and some street thugs grab her they try to mug her and i love the fact that she turns badass she kind of breaks loose of their grip she grabs her purse and starts swinging it around and, and uh, starts beating them up with her purse. And she makes a run for it. She gets away from them. And, of course, in the midst of this, we see a bystander witness to this event uh, taking out his trash. And he doesn't do a freaking thing to help. That's great. Good job, buddy. Great. And she's making a run for it. She gets to the park area and is hiding from the thugs. And, whew, thankfully in the distance, she sees a police officer apparently on patrol. And that's great. So she just approaches the cop and she's like, officer, 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 but he's not really reacting. And oh no. He's a maniac cop. He's huge. He lifts her up and snaps her neck like a twig and tosses her limp body like a rag doll. So it was like, oh, pretty decent opening, because that's freaky. It's like the idea of it. You think there it is, your savior to serve and protect a police officer. To the rescue, but he is the evil. He is the bad guy. And it was pretty gnarly when you hear that sound effect of him just like, like snapping her neck. I thought that was pretty effective. Now, could have this cold open been a little bit scarier or a little more subtle? I, I don't know, possibly, but I thought it was good enough. I thought it was still a pretty strong opening, in my opinion. So I'm going with that as my first favorite scene.
0: Yeah, I had this scene on the fence. Yeah. Um, like I said, I watched it twice. The reason I watched the second time is because I didn't understand what some of the reasons why some of the characters choices were. So I watched the second time with the closed caption on. So maybe I was like, all right, maybe I'm just not hearing something. So I'll just read along. And what's interesting in that opening scene when she's leaving for the night, um, one of the patrons, patrons is hitting on her. And she's like, you want me to take you home? She's like, no, I'd rather take my chance with the muggers. Right. So it's a, it was almost a line of foreshadowing, yeah. which I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty smart. But then when she's getting mugged and then that asshole is just sitting there watching, that got me mad. Absolutely. And then she gets away and takes off. So I couldn't understand why the muggers gave chase. Mm-hmm. And then once the muggers see the cop, I've never mugged anyone before. But if I think I, if I saw a cop, I'm turning in the other direction and running away. Yeah. And they're just kind of standing there watching what's going on. Right. That was confusing me. Why are you watching her go to the cop? Because all she's going to do is turn around
1: and point you out. Good point. Yeah. You'd want to get as far as away as possible.
0: Right. And that just goes back to the script writing issue. I was like, well, you should have figured out a different way to make the detective realize this could be a cop that's killing these people. I liked it, but I didn't like it. I was kind of on the fence with it. But I thought it was effective, too. And I I do like pretty much throughout the movie how you never really see Matt Cordell's face, the mm-hmm. maniac cop. How they always kind of cover it in shadows. I thought that was kind of effective. I was like, yeah, they did a pretty good job with that. Yeah,
1: I agree. I agree. I wish we would have seen him a little bit more at the end. We only get to see him briefly in a few shots. Yeah. Very briefly. I think it's a little prolonged with the, the hiding of his face. It's a little much towards the end of the movie. It's like, okay, we got to see him at this point. But I agree, for the most part, they do a very good job of kind of keeping his identity a secret and we really don't see what he looks like, which is scary. Fear of the unknown. So, yeah, and I agree. Like, I would have liked to have seen, even though our maniac cop does not actually speak a word throughout the entire movie. We hear him grunt from time to time, I believe, in a flashback and or... In present day, but in that cold open, he is completely silent when he grabs uh, young Cassie and lifts her up off the ground. And I thought it would have been a little cooler if, let's say, he could have motioned to her or put his arm around her and like taken her away from the scene, and she felt even more safe in his company. And then the slow realization comes that, oh, she's even in more danger next to him. And I don't know, but, uh, you know, it could have been even more effective potentially because then when Detective McRae comes onto the scene, let's say, and he could have been like, oh, it seems as though she knew whoever had killed her. Maybe it was a cop. Maybe she felt safe with this person and the person turned on her. And that may have led him to believe it was a police officer that committed the murder. I don't know. But uh, I thought the idea of it was effective. Regardless, what What do you have for your first scene or moment that you found favorite? Um,
0: yeah, so I'm going to go with a moment. And it's Death by Cement. <laughs> I
1: just thought right. that was cool. Yeah.
0: So the movie does start off with the maniac cop going on a killer spree. And the first killing is of the poor young waitress who gets her neck snapped. And then the second one was some weird cars at a red light and he asks the driver to get out and then just stabs him in the street and then throws him on the hood of his car and then the girlfriend drives away. But then the third one, and I had issues with this too, was a guy was I think he was a musician.
1: Our trombone player coming out of the jazz club.
0: And he's going to his car and the maniac cop basically cuffs him and the musician turns around sees that the maniac cop is bad news and then tries to run away. And then he runs and trips and literally falls into some fresh cement. And the maniac cop takes his head and just sticks it into the cement where he basically suffocates in. But then what's funny is it goes to the next day and all of a sudden you see two construction workers with jackhammers and they're trying to knock out the cement and then you just see the body. I mean, you could tell it's totally fake. (laughs) of the body laying there in the concrete sidewalk and he's still handcuffed because I was trying to look to see you briefly see the handcuff on the one arm. I was like, oh, they should have played that up because then that would have also alerted McRae that, yes, this is a a cop. Here's proof. Here's standard issue. Police handcuffs. But no, they don't capitalize on that. Right? Yeah. No, they don't. I just like the death by cement. I mean, we've seen it before in Remo Williams or... (laughs) The guy literally drowns in the cement. But the fact that you do like a face plant.
1: There was a little slight comic element to it, but then it was kind of creepy. Yeah, when a maniac cop really shoves his face into the cement and drowns him in the cement. And then, yeah, that funny like morning after sequence when you have the what looked like a miniature body dummy laying on the ground. Yeah,
0: it's almost like his body all shriveled up like it was out there in the sun for a while.
1: All dried up in the cement. That was a pretty pretty uh, fun kill. Yeah, I liked it. I yeah. was like, oh, yeah, I really haven't seen anything like that before. love it. So, yeah, we're kind of moving in chronological order here. Uh, my next scene is what I'm calling the Ellen Forrest slash Red Herring scene. I actually liked this scene. It was a little sad and uh, a little creepy. And also I felt sympathetic for the character of Ellen Forrest, who is played by Victoria Catlin. And Ellen Forrest is the wife of Officer Jack Forrest, played by Bruce Campbell. Now, we see Ellen in her nightgown and PJs. It's the evening, and she is speaking to the back of Jack Forrest, who's putting on his policeman's uniform, and she doesn't like that he's going out to work at night. She doesn't like the fact that he's going out to work so much during the nighttime, and she says that. And... We do not see Jack's face. We just see the back of him, and we know that he's a policeman putting on the uniform, and he appears to be around the same height of our maniac cop, and he is somewhat quiet, and Ellen goes on to speak that, you know, the fact that she's worried about his safety, but she's also worried about the fact that he's leaving her alone on a regular basis, and their marriage is suffering as a result. She's lonely, frightened. Uh, She's worried that she's losing her husband, and also she admits she's a bit scared of him. They're in marriage counseling, and they don't have a healthy relationship. And then, of course, Jack turns around to reveal, ah, yes, the handsome, square-jawed, and uh, prominent chin of Bruce Campbell. And still, we're like, oh, could this be the maniac cop? And that's why I call it the red herring scene, because we're... I mean, led to believe and meant to believe that this could potentially be our killer. And he does have a prominent uh, scar on his chin. So I don't know. Could be a bad guy. And he's, you know, somewhat sympathetic to Ellen, his wife, and the issues that they're having. But he's still a bit cold towards her as well. And again, he's not about to stick around. He's got to go to work. So then he uh, leaves. And I'm just like, boy, this poor woman is just feels like she is being left to her own devices and just extremely nervous. So I felt somewhat sympathetic for her. And then as soon as Jack Forrest, the officer, leaves, the phone rings and we hear on the other end the voice of a woman saying that her husband, the officer, Jack Forrest, is the killer. And it's like, what the hell is going on? Why is this woman randomly calling Ellen, telling her that her husband is the maniac cop? It's kind of weird and creepy. I thought it was effective watch, kind of feeling it and empathizing with Ellen, seeing it from her perspective, because she is clearly frayed at the edges. It feels like there's some gaslighting going on, which leads her to then follow Jack out of their apartment complex, their apartment building, which subsequently leads to her untimely demise. But I actually liked that scene in their apartment because it was like, oh, this is kind of weird. And it felt off. And even if it's not the best scene ever by any stretch of the imagination, it, and it felt like we we're introduced to one of our protagonists being Bruce Campbell playing Officer Jack Forrest uh, a little bit later in the movie because it's we're about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so into the movie maybe. I just thought it was an interesting choice. I don't know. It's kind of a cool scene, so... Put it on my list.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting choice because this was another one I had to watch again the second time because I got a little confused because the scene starts off with the wife basically cutting out a newspaper about the mm. fourth murder. Right. I She's making a scrapbook of, yeah. So I didn't realize until she goes to the hotel that she thinks that Jack was the killer because I think it was just dumping way too much stuff for me. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure this all out. Okay, it's an unhappy couple. They're going in marriage counseling. For some reason, she is afraid of him. He's working a lot at night. Right,
1: she's scared. He's been waking up with like night terrors. And she's been, you know, so right. she's a bit frightened by that.
0: So when I watched it again, and then I think maybe I missed the phone call. I didn't really hear what was said on the phone. Mm. And then was, oh, is your is Jack out killing again? Oh, He's somehow getting set up. Right. Yeah. I kind of wish they had shown them a little bit earlier and kind of built more into that scene. It's, I, I think they just dumped too much in one
1: spot. I agree with that. I do agree with that. It intrigued me. It drew me in at least. It made me want to know what was going on.
0: And why did she pick that night to go follow him? It was all perfectly set up for her to die. Mm-hmm. That was kind of weird. Yeah. Too. That part's but, the bit convenient. Her. Yeah. It was. All good though. Um, so I'm going to move on to uh, my favorite scene, which is Matt Cordell dies in the prison. Oh, yeah. So I think we're about midway through the movie and we find out that our maniac cop has been basically living in an
1: abandoned pier. Yeah, he's like living in a warehouse right on Pier 14. Yeah.
0: And he's either sleeping or lying down contemplating. And we have a little flashback. And it's of him being sentenced. There's an overhead shot of the prison. And we see him being taken in handcuffs. And he's going along the jails. And all the other inmates are looking at him. And you can tell that some of them recognize him. Ooh, he should not be here. This is not good. He's in some trouble. So then we cut to he's in the prison. He's taking a shower. And we see three inmates come in and trying to kill him and it does a little slow motion, but it's a, I think it's a cool little fight scene where he's kind of trying to take him out. Right. And then he kind of gets caught up with one of the prisoners. So he kind of loses his focus on whatever, where everyone is. And then he gets stabbed. And once he gets stabbed in the back, then he's kind of done. And then he falls and all the other prisoners start slashing him. So you can kind of see what has happened to him or, what the first steps of, of him becoming the maniac cop were. So I thought it was kind of an interesting scene.
1: Right. You see him in that moment being disfigured.
0: Right. And then um, it does a little um, homage to Psycho because you see the blood going oh, down the, the drain. Yeah. And then he's just kind of lying there dying. But at least it's like the, the seed of how this all starts. It still
1: opens up a lot of other questions. But I, I did like the scene itself. I think it's a great call, Bill Bant. It is well done. I think there's one interesting, because it does happen in slow motion when he is attacked in the shower and you're like, oh, this guy's, you know, he's a big dude and he can handle himself. And we understand that he is a bit of a a hero cop, although he has crossed the line in probably occurrences of police brutality. And that's basically what he's been accused for and why he's ended up in jail for, uh, amongst some other things, but... When he is handling himself quite well in the beginning and taking out some of the other inmates that are attacking him, he's like groaning and grunting as if he's a monster already, which is kind of funny. He's like... Right. But that is kind of a moment that is pretty gruesome when they slice up his face. He's almost like sympathetic in that moment. He's almost in a dark way, a heroic character where he's just really trying to defend himself and we know that he was real respected by other officers at that time and felt like they felt like he was wrongly imprisoned. And it is kind of sad almost that we see him present day lying by himself in this abandoned warehouse that's falling apart, this decrepit place. And he's just unable to sleep. Obviously, he's, we're assuming, the undead at this point. And he, it's that great lighting where most of his face is in the shadow and we just see the light coming across his eyes, which are wide open as he is experiencing this flashback, or at least we are as an audience. So I agree. It's a a pretty cool scene. You know, like you said, what's unfortunate about this whole scenario here, the movie itself, is that this is like, oh, okay, we get a little bit of his backstory. We understand what happened. Either he was wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned, and then brutally attacked, brutally disfigured, and has to live with this. And that's where a lot of the anger comes from and the his plot to re- exact his revenge because that's what we understand is the driving force in this movie is that he is out for revenge against the police department of New York City he wants to take out the commissioner and the mayor because he how he was done wrong done dirty and comes off a bit sympathetic like it's like part of you wants to root for him in a way but they don't follow through with it as you said you know we're only left with questions as to what because of what he does then throughout the movie nothing kind of comes to fruition
0: that maybe that's why they made him kill innocents in the beginning so you would not root for him Mm -hmm. because you'd want him to win i don't know it still makes things awkward but what i did like about that fight scene was it felt realistic yeah he was using you know the inmates momentum against them just literally just trying to push him into the wall because he was just bigger throwing elbows there was no kind of kung fu jiu-jitsu kind of stuff it was just your regular kind of fight in slow motion and slamming heads against the wall and i was like okay yeah i think if something like that happened that's how it would kind of play out sure it felt real
1: uh yeah yeah some good uh bare knuckle brutal uh hand-to-hand combat in that scene it was just making me think of probably the ultimate version of that is Vigo Mortensen film, Eastern Promises. Oh, right. Yeah. In the bathhouse. Which is like such an extended fight sequence and really, really brutal, but great choreography. That's a great movie. Anyway, uh, but that's good call, man. Good scene. Good scene. And a credit to our guy, Robert Zadar, man. Yes. He's a, he's a physical presence and uh, he was doing the the fight, man. Uh, Some impressive stuff there. I just have a couple more uh, favorite moments. Uh, My first is what I call the commissioner and captain's deaths. Those two kills, which happened immediately back to back. I thought it was shot pretty well. I thought it was another kind of a creative way of of shooting this particular dual kill uh, in the way that at this point in the story... We know that Jack has been set up. Again, that's Bruce Campbell's character, Jack Officer Jack Forrest. He's been set up to, to uh, appear as the maniac cop killer, and the entire police force is after him. And he is now teamed up with a fellow officer named Teresa Mallory, and this is his lover, uh, whom he was cheating on his wife with. So... Doesn't make Jack look too good, but at this point, his wife has been killed by the maniac cop, and he's on the run with Teresa. And they find out that the maniac cop is this ex hero cop named Matt Cordell, who is trying to exact his revenge upon the police department and the mayor of New York City. Now, Jack and Teresa go back to the police department to tell the commissioner what they've discovered that maniac cop is this ex cop this other guy named matt cordell it's not jack and but jack himself can't obviously go into the police department he's a wanted man so he stays across the street Teresa, meanwhile goes into the police department and approaches captain ripley and commissioner is it pike yes pike she tells them this crazy story and they're like who what are you talking about matt cordell is dead you're crazy you're under arrest by the way uh for aiding and abetting criminal because a lot of shit happened before this, and a lot of cops died. By the way, the night before. And on this particular day, it's the St. Patrick's Parade. St. Patrick's Day Parade in New York City. That's a big deal. And the night before, all these cops have been killed. But the parade goes on. So they're like, Teresa, Mallory, you're under arrest. And the commissioner and the captain walk down the hall leaving her back in the office under the custody of another police officer. And the commissioner and captain are down the hall waiting for the elevator. And we see this cool shot from down the hall. And you can see through like one of those uh, opaque like windows, uh, the shadow of Maniac Cop pulling out his knife, which by the way also is kind of a cool signature weapon I found for the Maniac Cop. Instead, So he has his police baton but it doubles as a knife. It's a basically the baton itself is a sheath for this blade, this knife that he uses to kill a lot of his victims. So I thought that was kind of a cool thing for the Maniac Cop to have. Anyway, we see the shadow behind the window, the glass of Maniac Cap pull the knife and stab both the commissioner and the captain to death. Thought it was a cool shot. It was like, okay, he exacted his revenge upon them, got those guys. Uh, and so I thought it would look cool. Thought there was some creative creativity there and I'll just quickly get to my next and final favorite moment which is just really really funny and I think it's hilarious our maniac cop has been brutally slaughtering innocents innocent people around the city throughout the film and then like basically an entire police department full of cops and at the end he commandeers the police wagon (laughs) the the policeman with Jack locked in the back He races down these streets, speeding away, but is kind enough to use the horn to weave in and out of traffic. He honks the horn. Fucking hilarious. This is a maniac cop, serial killer, undead creature, murderous beast. But he honks the horn. Brilliant. That's all I got, Bill Bant. What else do you have, man? All right, so I have two moments.
0: So the first one is, you kind of touched on the night where Cordell comes in and basically slaughters everyone in the station. Forrest has been arrested. He's been framed as the maniac cop. And Frank realizes that it's not him. It's probably this other cop, Matt. And he just needs to put together the evidence to prove that Forrest is innocent. So he goes Mm -hmm. to visit Forrest and he brings Teresa with him. And they go into the interrogation room, and they explain, okay, I know it's not you. I just got to get the evidence, and we're going to get you out, so don't worry about it. So he leaves the interrogation room and leaves Teresa in there, and they start talking. Sure enough, the maniac cop shows up and starts killing everyone, wreaking havoc. He ends up killing Frank, and of course, Forrest gets out of the interrogation room, and he's trying to stop the cop. But, of course, the police are now trying to stop him because they think now he's killing everyone in the station. But he gets away and he gets a gun and he's about to leave. And then two uniformed police officers come in and Frank pulls the gun on him. He's like, hey, this is not me. I did not do this. Put your guns down. Get on the floor. And he goes to run off. And you hear the one cop say to the other, hey, do you think we should give chase? And the other cop just says, you heard him. He didn't do it. And that just made me laugh. The fact the cops not going to take any chances because there are bodies abound already in this police precinct that uh, I'll just lie down here and uh, call it a
1: day. I did like that moment a lot. Yeah, you heard him. He didn't do it. <laughs> Let's not mess with him.
0: And then my last moment. It was the last stunt of the movie. I thought that was pretty cool. So what happens is uh, the maniac cop basically steals the paddy wagon, drives off, drives back to the pier. And he's going to get Frank out of the back of the paddy wagon and murder him and call it a day. But Teresa shows up with a shotgun and Frank, he times it where he knows when the door is going to open. So he goes running through and kind of surprises the maniac cop. And they kind of get into a little scuffle and the maniac cop gets back into the van to drive off again. They're driving around the pier. And for some reason, the maniac cop literally drives into a pipe and the pipe pierces him. And they keep going forward and they're going to jump off the basically the side of the pier. And I don't understand why Frank's doing this. Also, he's hanging on the side of the paddy wagon. And then the paddy wagon goes off the pier. I just thought that stunt was really cool because you can see it's a guy that's hanging on the mm-hmm. side of the paddy wagon. And all this debris is flat. And I'm just watching like, oh, my God. Is something going to hit this poor guy? Sure. Is something yeah. going to land on this guy? So I just... Pretty dangerous stunt. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty dangerous stunt. I just thought it was well executed. And that's what I liked about it. That's not a CGI stunt. That is a guy driving off the edge of a pier in a paddy wagon, praying to God that the paddy wagon doesn't land on him or any of the stuff that they just busted through doesn't land on him either. Wow. Kudos. Old school
1: stunt work right there. Loved it. Great call. That's all I could think of when you were describing it was old school. That's how they did it then. And probably it may have been a little more risky back then as well. Uh, So there is a danger element for sure. I had so many problems with that finale sequence uh, just from a logistical story standpoint. But the stunt itself, I completely agree, was very cool. Yeah. It it looks great. That, especially with the stuntman hanging off the side, playing kind of the role of Jack Forrest and then falling into the water as the police paddy wagon goes in as well. Uh, So, yeah, it looked great. That part, that stunt was well shot.
0: Yeah, and I did like some of the some of the driving shots they had of the police car that was chasing the wagon because they did the one where he kind yeah. of jumps over the the intersection. I thought was pretty cool, and then there was one where he crosses across an intersection between cars. So it's like, oh, for a low budget movie, I'm like, oh, they got a really good driver to do some of this stuff.
1: I agree that you know what I was watching it, and because of the gritty nature of like that warehouse district appear atmosphere. It was like echoes of To Live and Die in L.A. I was like, oh, this I was is thinking the same thing. Yeah, I was like, this is well shot. This part is well directed. I'm glad you pointed that out. I felt exactly the same way. Anyway, are we done with favorite scenes and moments?
0: All right. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have stab holes. Yes. And if it's not fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right, just really quick. Fake lightning. Why do we need that? Why do we need fake lightning? What was that all about? That's right.
1: I completely forgot about that. When did that happen? Was that in the very beginning? When did that happen?
0: So the first burst of fake lightning was right after they do the skyline shot. Right. Of New York. Yeah, the opening. And then when the waitress leaves work and she's about to walk around the corner and get it one more
1: time. And then that's
0: it. So why did you put that in there?
1: It was unnecessary, yeah, just to add to the ominous atmosphere. But, yeah, totally unnecessary. It's not as if it started raining after that or anything. No. Good point, man. You ready to get into it? Yeah, you, you've already kicked us off here with our Swiss cheese and complaints. But uh, I just really wanted to touch, again, on my major Swiss cheese item here. The major hole is that it's never quite clear as to whether Matt Cordell slash Maniac Cop is truly dead Or is he still alive or undead or risen for the dead? We know that he was brutally attacked in prison by inmates that he put away and they slice and dice him. But the medical examiner finds that he is technically still alive, although pretty much brain dead and releases the pretty much brain dead body to his then girlfriend, Sally. So we are to assume that Sally was looking after him to a certain extent while he was healing and living in this warehouse on Pier 14. Not ever speaking a word, just looking gray-skinned and creepy and massively scarred and disfigured and donning his police uniform to go out into the city at night and exact his revenge. So what's his purpose? If Because he's randomly killing people, but then he's also supposedly going after the higher-ups within the hierarchy of the police department to take them out because he blames them for having being wrongly imprisoned. But the question for me, really even beyond this, if Matt Cordell was never actually dead, he only suffered brain damage from what I assume was extreme blood loss, then he's this now deranged psychopath walking the streets. And so why doesn't he die when he gets shot multiple times? If he's still human, he's still technically alive because Teresa, the officer, Teresa Mallory specifically says she shot him twice in the head during their first encounter. Is he alive or is he really undead? Is he a zombie? Is he a possessed? Like this is where now you had made the Friday, the 13th comp. I kept thinking Michael Myers, as in was he just possessed at this point by some sort of demon of some kind, or is it just that he's fueled by revenge? And as this sort of deranged undead character, he is endowed with this superhuman strength. Or, okay, it's possible that he was wearing a a bulletproof vest, but also it doesn't make sense, you know, because she, again, says it doesn't matter if he was wearing a vest. I shot him in the head. He didn't die. But we understand in the lore that the medical examiner said that he was still alive. Like, it wasn't as if he died and came back from the dead. We don't see any of that. There's no explanation in the lore of this film. Everything is very haphazard and unclear. There's so many questions between... What is he exactly? How did he, we know how he became disfigured, but what is he now? And what really is his purpose? Is it just to randomly kill people or, because then here's another thing. This is just part of the giant hole is that is the maniac cop is Matt Cardor smart enough as an undead person to set up. Is he smart? Does he have the smarts to set up Jack Forrest as the killer to put the cops off his trail? Because then he'd be smart enough to follow through with the singular mission of killing the commissioner and the mayor, not just committing random murders. But he does commit random murders. So my question is then, was it his girlfriend, Sally, who works in the police department, whom is the one that puts him on to saying, oh, Matt, you need to set up Jack because you've committed these random murders. You need to set up this officer, Jack Forrest, to take the blame for you and frame him. Is she the one that coordinates that? Because she she calls Ellen and says, your husband is the killer. And then Ellen goes walking the streets following her husband and then ends up getting killed. And that's how Jack gets framed. Anyway, does any of that make any sense? Or do you understand why this is just – that's my huge hole or holes? Yes,
0: because the problem with the script is any time it tries to imply an answer, it ends up raising – way more questions
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and that becomes a problem because then you're too busy trying to figure out the answers and not enjoy the movie because, okay, so the coroner says that Matt is brain dead. And then the first murder is, which we think is the waitress. Mm-hmm. So when was he set free of prison to fall under Sally's care? How much time has passed? I thought you about never that never get too. a sense right. of that. And that kind of gets weird. So he's just been sitting at the pier for years, maybe months, maybe Mm -hmm. because at one point Forrest does say when McRae tells him like, oh, we think it's this ex cop, Matt Cordell. And Forrest's like, oh, yeah, he's before my time. I've heard of him. We don't know if Forrest is a rookie cop or how long he's been on the force. I would assume, you know, he's early in his career. So maybe three or four years. Mm -hmm. So how long has Matt been in hiding? And then if he's brain dead, how is he taking any sort of direction from Sally to even know how to do these things? Okay. He's deranged and he's killing people, innocent people. But like you said, how are they able to set up for us then? Because he shouldn't even understand what she's saying to him. Right. If what the coroner or the medical examiner is saying is correct. So it just makes it more confusing. So, how is he functioning? Because he's alive,
1: but he's not alive, <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know if it, is he like a Frankenstein's creature kind of thing here. I don't know. You know, like it would be one thing if it were like you said, like the the making that Friday the Thirteenth comp. Like if like if he was taking orders from Mother, or in this case, his girlfriend. Like taking orders from her, she was literally just telling him what to do.
0: See, if they wrote it where he survived the attack and the medical examiner felt so bad for him that he like he kind of does it, that he declares him dead, he should never have said he was brain dead. He just should have just, you know what, I faked that he died and I had Sally take him.
1: Right, filled out the death certificate and everything, but we see that he uses the stethoscope and that his heart is still beating, and that's enough. We know, oh, okay, he's still alive.
0: Yeah, don't say he's brain
1: dead. Right, 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 right. It's bringing up too many more questions
0: because now a lot of the other stuff doesn't make sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, here's a complaint. More Regina, please, the newswoman. I need to see more of her. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But then this made no sense. So supposedly Regina is the newswoman for a TV station. That's from the scene. That's what I assumed. And McRae comes to her with evidence to warn people that there is a cop on the loose that is killing innocent people because the commissioner wants this suppressed. He doesn't want people to know that there's a cop out there killing people. So he gives her all the evidence. And then we go to – and we hear in the conversation too that I'm thinking on the 11 o'clock news because he says something to the effect of – Absolutely. Like she's on camera.
1: Yeah. Correct.
0: So I'm expecting the next scene to be her giving the report of the maniac cop. But all of a sudden, it becomes a radio broadcast mm-hmm. happening during the day. And oh, it's a terrible scene where this woman is listening to Regina in her car, giving the report that there's a cop on the loose that's killing people. And her car breaks down and the cop pulls up and the cop comes up to the car to help. And this woman pulls out a gun and shoots the cop in the head. Yeah, it's brutal. And it's it was like a kid. I was like, whoa, yeah. that's kind of rough. But I was like, wait a second. How is this woman hearing this report in the middle of the day the next day? It even says in the report that the cop attacks people at night. So why would this woman think this cop that's approaching the car would be the maniac cop? It just got really confusing. There's all
1: kinds of things wrong with it.
0: And then there's no follow-up with her. That's it. She's done. Once she makes the report, we'd never see her again. Yeah.
1: Which is unfortunate. Yeah. She had great, great 80s feathered blonde hair. Oh, she did. I am so all about this complaint. I am right there okay. with you, Bill Bant. And I'm going to take it a step back. And you touched on this scene before, uh, because I have a complaint between with this whole scene between the commissioner and Detective McCrae, Because the commissioner calls McRae into his office and they start talking about this supposed, this well, not supposed, but this murder that happened. And McRae has this theory that it's a police officer that committed the murder. And he has absolutely no evidence to that fact whatsoever. He's just making an assumption. So the commissioner is actually in the right to say, how do you know that? It could be someone impersonating a police officer. And as an audience member, I'm like, yeah, that's right. Why would you assume it's a cop automatically? And then to double down on that, Detective McCray actually says, oh yeah, no, he's, uh, the cop is the killer and he's going to kill again. He enjoys killing. And once again, I scream at the screen, how do you know that? You don't know anything about this at all. You don't know anything about the killer. You're just making, again, blind assumptions. This is batshit crazy. So knowing that, that he's just making these assumptions, then I love the fact that then McCrae goes, what we need to do is investigate our own police officers, find any cops, that you know fill the same profile they are of the same build height hair color and maybe have been suffering from stress or trauma or mentally unstable and then the commission immediately calls him out and i love this This is where my complaint is actually because the commission is rather harsh here it goes rather nonchalantly and indelicately goes as a matter of fact didn't you try to shoot yourself a couple years back (laughs) Like, whoa Oh Jesus, man, take it easy. Where's your bedside manner? And then we learn that McCray most likely did try to commit suicide after losing his partner in the line of duty. That's the backstory of detective McRae, which never comes back into play at all in the story because that would have been cool. Like if now we know maybe detective McCray is mentally unstable or has this kind of emotional instability due to losing his own partner. Uh, now, and this is kind of like another comp to lethal weapon here is like this Martin Riggs thing. Like maybe McRae himself is a little bit of a loose cannon. He's a little bit unstable. And because he lost a partner, maybe there's a connection between him and this Matt Cordell, this maniac cop who got killed. I don't know. There could have been some cool stuff. Never comes back into play, but we know that McRae's making these assumptions that the killer is a cop with no evidence whatsoever to that fact. And then to this Scene You're talking about when he then decides, yeah, you know what, I'm going to leak all this information to a reporter because I feel like it needs to get out just based on eyewitness testimony that there was some guy dressed as a cop killing people. And he's got all the testimony in a a manila envelope that he hands to Regina, the hot reporter, who is a television reporter whom we don't see on TV. We only hear the radio broadcast of the report. And it's the dumbest thing McCray could ever do. It's such an egregious error. It's ridiculous to take this information to a tabloid reporter because then what does it do? It creates wide panic. That's what it does. It's not responsible reporting. And his name is actually mentioned in the broadcast, which makes him a total target within the police department. They're all going to come after him. Who else would have leaked it? He's the one with the theory. And it's like, McCray, what the F were you thinking, you know, releasing this information or leaking it to a a television reporter? So it spreads panic among the population because now they think it's a cop out there and they're all scared. So it's just dumb. Like, it would, wouldn't do that.
0: He should have been suspended
1: right away. Oh, immediately. All the cops would be looking at McCray sideways being like, Who do you think you are? Like, what do you know? Accusing one of us as being the killer.
0: But I agree that scene with Pike and McRae is so awkward (laughs) because they're trying to give us background information. McRae that, like you said, never comes up again. I'm surprised they didn't go the cheap route and you find out that McRae and, and the maniac cop used to be partners. Right. You're doing everything else. You should have just made them or in the academy together or something. Some kind of
1: connection. Yeah, that would have made a lot more sense and would have been the easy way out there. Whereas that's why McRae knows it's a cop because he probably he either has some sort of sixth sense or knows that it's Cordell, like as if right. if Cordell there's was some ex-party. kind of M.O. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. some kind of right. M.O. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Murder's like
0: oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay, so going towards the end of the movie, there's a ton of things. So the day of the parade and. Mm-hmm. You mentioned as one of your favorite scenes when the commissioner and the captain get killed. So basically, there's nobody else left in the building except for Teresa and this other officer who's arresting Teresa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they're walking down the hall, and the maniac <laughs> oh, cop totally. kills the police officer. Right. And Teresa starts screaming. She did a lot of screaming for some reason. I mean, I'm that's like, that's what, what I said officer. earlier. I totally agree. Yeah. Aren't you a cop? So the cop is down. And she's handcuffed to this cop. She can't run. Where'd the maniac cop go? Why'd he let her go? And then he kind of circles around. What was he, checking the whole building to make sure it was empty first before he goes back to kill her? Oh my God. That That didn't make any sense. It should have been kill, kill.
1: Bye-bye, Teresa. I had written that down too, I believe. Because they, yeah. Teresa, (laughs) Teresa screams and screams and doesn't act like a cop. She drags the officer's body into another room. Meanwhile, maniac cop Could have killed her like 10 times over. She's handcuffed to a dead body. Just kill her. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's even that other cop who screamed like a girl. I'm like, what are you doing? You've never seen a dead body before? Come on, man.
1: Right. Yeah, it's batshit weird because he totally disappears and then has to break into that room that she's in and pulls like a shining moment, like breaking through the door with the knife and such. We could go on and on with complaints for sure. I have some long-winded complaints that I will just kind of skip over here. Just stuff that doesn't make any sense. The hotel manager gives Ellen, the wife, the key to Jack's hotel room. That happened earlier in the film when Ellen... Yeah,
0: I wanted to know what she said.
1: Yeah, and what a hotel manager would never give somebody just a key to somebody else's room. Yeah,
0: I was like, did he, did he bribe her? I, went, I wanted yeah, to know what it was. And yeah. then this brought up a complaint, though. The, so she walks in on her husband, and Teresa on this affair. And she literally just followed him in five minutes later, and the two of them were just sleeping in the bed. Did you just have the quickest sex ever? (laughs) Hey, let's just go sleep in a bed
1: naked together. You got to catch him in the act. Well, you hear the sounds of them humping from outside the door, and then she walks in on them, and it looks like they're just lying next to each other naked. Yeah. I thought they were kind of in the act, but I guess they weren't in the act. It was weird. That was weird. Yeah. Yeah. The timing of it. You're right. didn't make any sense. No. I love that. There's a scene between McCrae and Teresa at a bar when uh, they're discussing the case and McCrae orders another round of drinks, even though they have two full drinks in front of them. And then he gets up to leave. He's <laughs> like, yep. yeah, another round. Make them doubles. Oh, Teresa, I'm out of here. Peace out. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. What, what are you doing? Pick up the tab. You're yeah, yeah. My plate. Thanks.
0: Not only that, he's making her pay for the drinks. Giving her the keys to his car, so now she's drunk
1: and going to try to drive. Does she even know where you live? Yeah. And speaking of Frank McRae's car, I love this. Once that he's put together that the once hero cop Matt Cordell is the maniac cop, and the maniac cop goes on that one-man like like killing spree at the police precinct and the department, well, maniac cop disposes of his old girlfriend Sally first by just slamming her against a wall. That's fun. And then gets into an extremely lame fight with Detective McRae himself by throwing him around into some filing cabinets. It's awful. Meanwhile, Teresa is hanging out with Jack in an interrogation room. And that's supposed to be serious, but they're making out, which is, that's fun. And once they hear all the commotion and screams, etc., they leave the interrogation room. And this is another moment where Teresa is screaming and not acting like a cop for some reason. Within the police department. What is she doing? I don't understand. Jack's the one who grabs the gun and is like, I'll take charge of the situation. Meanwhile, he instructs her. He says, you go down, get into Frank McRae's car and hotwire it if you need to, if we're not back in five minutes. So be ready to rock and roll. Great. She takes off. And then Jack goes and goes up into the filing room where Sally's dead. And at this point... Maniac cop has grabbed McCrae and tossed him out the window. And McCray was a good death. goes flying through the window and goes lands on like a taxi cab down below, which happens to be next to his car, where Teresa is inside the car. And she's freaking out, screaming, of course. And this is my complaint, is then Jack runs down to meet Teresa at the car. But instead of hot wiring it and driving off, they just go running down the street. Like what the hell are you doing? The car, get in the car. That <laughs> you have, you're in a car. What are you doing? There's some d- just just decisions and choices in this where I'm like I'm confounded. Right,
0: all right, really quick on this one. Stunt man in a wig. Good lord, that was bad. So
1: when Teresa, oh, I know exactly. I know what you mean.
0: Yeah, when she's alone with the other cop, and the cop gets killed, and she drags him into a room and closes the door, finds the <laughs> cops. Keys the handcuffs. And then the maniac cop comes in and basically chases her through a window. And once she goes through the window, she's on the ledge and she gets on the ledge. She craw- runs across the ledge, jumps on the roof and then runs across the roof and then comes down the fire exit. Yeah, that's not her. That's a guy. Oh, my God. In a it's really so bad good. wig.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. It's brilliant. It's something out of either Naked Gun or Top Secret or one of those films where you see this. Oh, no, that's what it was. Spaceballs. It's Spaceballs. Oh, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. You captured their stunt doubles. And the people turn around and it's the guy with the full beard and the mustache wearing a blonde wig. That's how bad that was.
0: Yeah. I was like, you couldn't find a woman just to run across. There wasn't anything dangerous about that. I mean, yes, for an actor, yes. You don't want the actor to do it. You could slip off the side of the ledge. But the rooftop, you can't have an actress run across the rooftop, at least. You can't have him crawl down the fire escape. Come on. Yeah. It just compounds the fact that it's a, a stuntman
1: in a really bad wig. Good call. Good call. I love the fact that uh, when Jack and Teresa go to the Sing Sing Penitentiary to keep the appointment that McRae had made with the medical examiner, and they walk in and they go up to the security guard at the desk, they're like, uh, yeah, we're here to see the medical examiner. And he's like, who are you? And he says, uh, Detective McCray." He's like, oh, yeah, go ahead. Hey, you want to ask him for some ID, buddy? Maybe? No. It takes till middle of the scene with medical examiner. The, the examiner actually asks Jack for the ID. And he's like, oh, you're not Detective McCray." It's like, what? what this is just so dumb. Like, what? why are you? Anyway. So I'm, my last complaint, I'm just skipping to the end of the movie here, is that it uh, felt like a sudden way to end the movie. Jack doesn't really do anything heroic. I mean, Maniac Cop is randomly impaled by a randomly suspended metal pipe. He doesn't go out in a blaze of glory. I mean, it's kind, it's a nasty kill. Like, his death is gnarly, but it doesn't really feel like there's a, a proper amount of buildup to it. It's a kind of a it's a cool stunt into itself isolated as a stunt but i was hoping for maniac cop to kind of infiltrate the saint patty's day parade and get to the mayor which apparently is in the extended cut or at least create havoc during the parade and chaos like ensues and the people clear the streets and then there, there's like a showdown between good cop jack and evil maniac cop maybe in the middle of the street or something like that but maybe they didn't have the the, the budget for the big parade with all the extras and everything i, I don't know but it was a little anticlimactic for me. That was kind of my final complaint.
0: That's so funny. I had a final complaint, but then when you made your final complaint, I have to change my final complaint. <laughs> okay, Go for it. So I'm not going to say the other one I was going to say, because I'm, I want this one to be my last one. All right. So at the end of the movie, and we're giving it away, so the maniac cop drives the paddy wagon into the river, the where whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So then the next scene is they're pulling the paddy wagon out of the lake to see if they can find the maniac cop. And of right. course you have hundreds of cops standing around this car with guns drawn with normal people just kind of hanging out too. Like sure. this is a maniac. Why are they even around? And they bring the paddy wagon. They put it down. They notice the maniac cop's not in there. And then it cuts to underneath the pier. You see the hand of the maniac cop come out of the you don't have anybody in the water
1: checking? No divers in the water, yeah.
0: No, 75 cops sitting on a pier waiting for this car to come out, but you have nobody in the water. Sorry, the maniac cop is right, right to kill all of you because you're morons. Absolutely. It's so it's,
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, so oh I was like, God. where the the yeah, divers? How are you not searching the water? That's a great point.
0: And I didn't think of that until you, you mentioned the, the weak ending. Oh, yeah, it's even weaker than that. All right, so let's move on to Hey, It's That Actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's That Actor. All right, Jason, who do you have for Hey, It's That
1: Actor? All right. I'm a little nervous. No, no. I hope I'm pronouncing this gentleman's name correctly, but I went with Frank Pesky. Pesky? That's who I went with. Oh, my God. No way. Yes. That's great. And I
0: knew why you might have
1: picked him, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, because it was definitely, hey, it's that actor. He was the one, I mean, there was a couple in here that I, was, that I recognized, Sam Raimi being one, of course. Uh, Frank Pesky was the watchman at the Pier 14, and he's recognizable, and he's a good actor. You can tell, like, he's been in a bunch of stuff, and his brief role in this is good. Like, he's good enough. Kind of surprises Detective McRae as McRae is leaving. Now, where was Frank Pesky as the Watchman the first time everybody entered the pier? I don't know. He wasn't at a station, but he's there when they're leaving. Anyway, he shows up, has a little confrontation with Detective McRae. But uh, Frank Pesky, character, actor, and uh, Bill, you'll be able to expound on this, but a little bit from his 80s filmography, he'd work with our director, of this film, but previously in the 1980 film, just called Maniac. He was a TV reporter or the voice of a TV reporter in the film Maniac. Lustig, is it Ken Lustig? Yeah, William Lustig. William Lustig, thank you, directed that film Maniac in 1980 and is also the director of this, Maniac Cop, in 1988. Our guy Frank Pesky goes on to play a small role. Uh, His character's name was Mobby's Regular in the 1983 film Flashdance. Uh, he was in a couple episodes of both these TV series, Blue Thunder and Airwolf. But I got to mention that he did appear in an episode of Miami Vice. I'm sure you had this, Bill Bant. In the year 1985, he plays the role of Benny in the great episode, The Home Invaders. Yes, classic. It is an all timer if you're a Miami Vice fan. Uh, so he's in one of the best episodes of Miami Vice. But. A year before that, in 1984, he is the cigarette buyer. And I believe that's like the cold open. Like that's the beginning of Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, one of the best cold opens of a movie. Oh, it's such a great, yeah. Then you get the, what's the, is that a Pointer Sisters song? What's the song? Yep, yeah. Neutron Dance. Yes, Neutron Dance. Thank you. What a great opening. And then in the sequel in 1987, Beverly Hills Cop 2, his character is given a name. He plays the role of Carlotta, which is the same character, I guess, as the cigarette buyer from Beverly Hills Cop 1. But uh, he played the role of the bartender in uh, 1986's Top Gun. Uh, And then, of course, he was in this Maniac Cop. Uh, He plays Carmine in Midnight Run. Oh, my God. You know, another great part. Just a great role. What I can't wait to cover that movie on this pod, Midnight Run. One of my favorites. He was in Lockup in 1989. He was in Maniac Cop 2 as well as uh, the strip club MC. <laughs> so yeah, uh, he was in some, you know, he did uh, some Stallone films, obviously. Uh, in the 70s, he was in Paradise Alley. And then I mentioned Lockup as well. And then he was most recently in Creed in 2015. He'd been featured in the Eddie Murphy films, uh, the Beverly Hills Cop movies. And, uh w- yeah, worked with William Lustig, the director of the Maniac Cop films, Passed away in 2022 at the age of 75 in Burbank, California. R.I.P. Frank Pesky.
0: Yeah, I had Frank also, and then I realized, just because of Beverly Hills Cop, that's why I kind of wanted to make sure, sure we pointed him out. But then once I realized he was in a Miami Vice episode, I was like, Ah, oh, Jason might take him. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I'll roll the dice and see what happens, because it's like, oh, there's so many other people in this. So once I see they have a Miami Vice credit, i got to stay away, because I'm like, oh, Jason's going to take him. So, <laughs> yep, I had the same guy. Uh, Well, he
1: also, outside of like Sam Raimi, who plays a a reporter in this film and is recognizable, if you're familiar with Sam Raimi or even like Ted Raimi, whom I thought it was at first when I saw him, I was like, oh, hey, it's the Raimi brother. Oh, no, it is Mm -hmm. actually Sam Raimi. I'm like, oh, he was really the one that stood out to me where it's like, oh, I know that guy from something else. It's a hey, Frank Pesky. And the
0: funny thing is, is he is in both. Maniac cop two and three playing totally different characters, but he's not the one that gets run over as the watchman either. Mm. Oh, they shouldn't have brought him back and had him at least get run over there. Yeah. They're yeah. That was totally weird that they watchmen. didn't have the same watchman later on in the film. Oh, well. All right. So let's move on to facts and trivia. Holy moly. This is so hard to find. Facts yeah. And trivia pretty for this thin. Movie. I think most of them we already talked about. So what do I have left? So we are already talking about some of the cameos I thought this was interesting. So William Lusting's uncle, Jake Lamada, Yeah. The Jake LaMotta, the boxer, who's the basis of raging bull appears as a detective. I thought that was pretty cool.
1: That I considered him as a, Hey, it's that actor, but I didn't even, I wouldn't have recognized him, nor did I recognize him, but I saw this in the research and I was like, are you kidding me? Jake LaMotta is in this movie. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Jake Lamotta's said, yeah, he's done a couple of movies. Yeah. Well, I was kind of looking that up. So that was kind of interesting. And then William Lustig's daughter is the woman killed in the opening of the movie. Yeah. And supposedly every movie that she appears in of her dad, she ends up dying in. Right. Wow.
1: Well, that's some dad. It's good to be friends with William Lustig. You end up in all of his movies.
0: Do you have anything left?
1: Yeah. Uh, both Bruce Campbell and Robert Zadar had the nickname The Chin. Bruce Campbell admits that he only did the film because he needed work. He also admits that this film wasn't any good. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sam Raimi appears in the two first films of this franchise as a reporter. His brother, Ted Raimi, inherits the role in the third film.
0: That's what was trying to figure out what their connection was, that the fact that he would do this. Like, I
1: still didn't see that in the research. I'm very curious about what Sam Raimi... Obviously, we have the Sam Raimi-Bruce Campbell connection. I mean, they came up together. Correct. They were friends forever and did the Evil mm-hmm. Dead stuff. But I didn't know what Sam Raimi's connection to William Lustig is but obviously they are all ran in the same circles. It was interesting. There is a shot in this film and I think it is a, a shot with Bruce Campbell in it. That was a Dutch tilt. And I was like, Oh, is this a Sam Raimi flair kind of thing here? And Sam Raimi did uh, in the research, I did see that he shot some sequences during the parade, the St. Patty's day parade or right. something like that.
0: Yeah. I saw
1: shot some of the parade stuff.
0: Yeah. So every other fact we've already stepped on throughout the course of this Episode so all I have left is, and we kind of mentioned this already that the movie does take place in New York, but they only shot in New York for three days, and the rest of it was out here in California. Kind of interesting because you figure probably a film like this probably maybe twenty one days of shooting. You think? Mm, yeah, and only three of them were in New York.
1: Yeah, right. I, 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 but no I, I didn't see guess. where else they had shot it. I, are we assuming Los Angeles? No, so I, read I, that... in, yeah, I read that
0: it was yeah I read that was in California, yeah. but
1: that I couldn't even find out where. Yeah. I didn't see it. Uh, I've got two more quick bits here. A uh, quick shout out okay. to John N- Nolan, who was the special makeup effects supervisor on this film and had also worked on our first entry in this year's Splatter Cinema Month, Reanimator. So, shout out to John Nolan, doing some great special makeup effects in both Reanimator and this film, Maniac Cop. In October of 2019, Deadline reported that HBO and Canal Plus has picked up a Maniac Cop TV series that will be executive produced by Nicholas Winding Refn, who was the uh, director of Drive. Drive, which I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, supposedly uh, produced by him through his production company and John Hyams, who will also direct the pilot. And then, but I, so I don't know if that's true or not, or if it holds true to this day. But then I was looking at William Lustig's filmography, and it says, as a producer in his filmography, that as of this year, he's working on an announced Maniac Cop project. Supposedly, we're getting more Maniac Cop. We can't do anything original, can we? No. All right.
0: So let's move on to box office. So Maniac Cop was released on May 13th, 1988 in a whopping 50 theaters on an estimated budget of $1.1 million. It grossed $670,000 domestically.
1: Hmm.
0: However, Maniac Cop became a cult hit on the video market, garnering two direct-to-video sequels, which we have mentioned. Maniac Cop 2 in 1990 and Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence, in 1992. Both movies were directed by William Lustig and starred Robert Davi of License to Kill fame and, of course, Robert Zadar. So moving on to reviews, um, this would come as no shock to anyone, but Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel did not review this movie for their show at the Movies. So I looked up Maniac Cop in Leonard Maltin's 2015 Movie Guide, The Modern Era, the final edition of the long-running Movie Guide series, and he gave Maniac Cop one-and-a-half stars, stating, Potentially intriguing premise is bludgeoned by failed black humor and ham-fisted direction into standard stock and slash fare. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a tomato meter score of 53% and has an IMDb rating of 6.0. So this takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Maniac Cop?
1: I'll admit, Bill Bant, I'm cheating. I should have put this in my complaints, but I put it in questions instead, just so I could complain more. (laughs) But this is a question. Because if Maniac Cop's goal was to exact his revenge against the mayor and the commissioner, the police department. That's fine. So he takes out the commissioner and the police captain. That's a success. Points for Maniac Cop. So his next target should be the mayor during the St. Patrick's Day Parade. But instead, after he fails to kill Teresa, like on the rooftop when she climbs out the window, he goes right after Jack and takes him to Pier 14, Why would the maniac cop be distracted from his primary goal and go after Jack at this point? Shouldn't he be going after the mayor? I have no idea. It seemed really odd to me that he would divert from his primary goal and just go, I'm going to take over the police paddy wagon with Jack, who's already locked in the back, and drive him to the warehouse in the pier. Why? And then even then, it's so random because at the pier, when... They kind of have a like a two-second fight sequence because Teresa shows up with the other cop. The other cop gets killed, and then it's Teresa, Jack, and the Maniac cop, and they have a little brief thing, and we finally see Maniac cop's face, but Maniac cop decides to take off in the paddy wagon. It doesn't even stick around to to kill Teresa and Jack and just cruises off and then gets impaled by the metal pipe, and, and then that's the end of the movie. And it's like, what? What? Wait, And now I understand, though, why in the extended cut, you know, they show him in the mayor's office and him killing the mayor, which would have been a much more kind of creepy and effective ending, I think, for just the regular cut.
0: But I don't know. Which goes back to did someone not read the script before they decided to start shooting it and maybe go,
1: "Ooh, wait a sec. This doesn't make any sense. Everything's open ended. Yeah. They don't close any loops here.
0: No. Jason, did we see a cop drinking some beer there during the parade? I saw a cop there drinking some beer during the parade shots, and I was wondering, is I, you know, read in the research that they filmed that before the film itself, so I wasn't sure. I was like, is that an actor cop, or was that a real cop drinking beer during the the parade? Oh, did I don't you know. catch that shot.
1: No, no. Oh yeah. Oh, that's great. Like you're being serious. Like it was it an actual, like an on-duty yeah. police officer just throwing one back hmm Yeah, I don't know. I missed it. Oh, damn. <laughs> I thought you would have, you would have caught that.
0: I want to know. Is that a real cop or was that an actor cop? Yeah, I don't know. I was trying to be a little funny in there.
1: Yeah, I gotcha. That is funny. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe he just went off the clock at that point. Yeah, it could have been. Uh, I really don't have much else here, man. I had an additional thought. Just the fact that I, the person... I, you know who I really felt bad for was Ellen Forrest, man. I'm going to go back to that character. Jack's wife. That poor girl. I mean... Her marriage is fallen apart. She's afraid of being left alone. She finds out her husband's cheating on her. And then, you know, all of her worst fears are being realized, basically, only to have her throat sliced open by the maniac cop. She just got a raw deal.
0: Yeah, she did. How did she get to that point? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like he's a bad person, but she obviously drove him away where he ends up having an affair.
1: Yeah, she had some issues, like some manic behavior kind of thing with the whole cutting out the clippings from the newspapers and making like a scrapbook of the maniac cop. Yeah,
0: what was she going to do with that? Her
1: husband is a cop, and it's like, again, there was, just like Leonard Maltin said, like there's some stuff in this premise that was, they had some building blocks here to build upon, which just never happened.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, I got a question for you. Yeah. If you were a criminal, what police officer... Would you most likely be worried about if they showed up at your door? Okay. All right. Great. All right. So we have Officer Matt Cordell, the maniac cop, Detective Jimmy Popeye Doyle from the French Connection, mm. Detective Alonzo Harris from Training Day, <laughs> Inspector Young from Hard Boiled. Oh, wow. John McLean from Die Hard.
1: Of course. I knew he had to be in there.
0: Yes. Um, Harry Callahan from Dirty Harry. Oh, man. Or the future of law enforcement, RoboCop. <laughs> so if you're a criminal and one of these showed up at your door, which which one worry you the most?
1: Oh, wow. That's really tough, man. God. Like, I'm trying to think of who would worry me. Oh, man. I'd probably go with... Uh... Oh, man. You know, obviously, I mean, I'm such a fan of RoboCop. I don't know. I But... I probably go, It's it's got to be close between Dirty Harry, Callahan, or Papa Doyle. I don't know something about Gene Hackman is extremely intimidating to me. That's, yeah, that's true. Good call on that one. There's just something about him, just like there's kind of no nonsense. Like it's just all serious, all business. There's no, you see him and you know you're done. You're going in, mm-hmm. you're being taken in. But there's also, I don't know, Dirty Harry, there's just that threat of he just might shoot you right there. I don't know. I, right. That's a great question, man. I don't did you have an answer yourself? I think I would go Robocop. See, that that seems to be the it has to kind of be the obvious answer, I would think.
0: Because he he's there. He definitely has the evidence. You can't reason with him. Yeah. And uh you can't stop him. He's gonna
1: fuck you up. I guess that's a good call. Yeah. Like if Robocop's at your door, you're done. There's no out. Yeah.
0: All right. You have and, any other thoughts or questions?
1: Uh no. I got nothing, man. I'm done with Maniac Cop. Well, we're not done yet. Jason, oh. We, okay. have do we have
0: to do our oh, rating. Let's do our rating. Oh, right. So on a scale of one to
1: five police gloves, what do you give <laughs> Maniac Cop? I'm giving Maniac Cop two white spotless police gloves. That's right. I was thinking of just giving it one only because Maniac Cop, they make it a point to show you that he's only got one white glove because Sally, his one time girlfriend, takes one of the gloves off but there's a total goof in the film when he's driving the paddy wagon towards the end where he has both gloves on and then one of them disappears again. So I give it still though, I'll give it two two police gloves this is a bad movie but it's got its place in the 80s slasher cult classics for some out there, I have no doubt. I kind of Put it in the category. This could definitely be a party movie. Watch it with your friends. Turn it into a drinking game. Have fun with it. Because I could see how this could be looked at as a good, bad movie. Because it's just kind of ridiculous. And you want to shout at the screen at so many times. Like going, what is happening? Why are you doing this? What? That's dumb. That's a terrible line. This is, no, you're being ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. So that could possibly be fun in a party scenario, watching this film with friends. That's all I got, two two gloves. How about you, man?
0: Yeah, I was uh, debating between two and two and a half, and I ended up going two and a half.
1: I think because, you know, this is a first
0: time watch, and we're being analytical because we're trying to do it for the episode. So maybe I'm a little more harsher than I would have been if I was just trying to watch it for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. Like when we did Children of the Corn last year and I said, I don't need to watch any of the other sequels. At the end of this, I was still like, you know what? I'll eventually try to watch Maniac Cop 2. Everywhere I read Maniac Cop 3 is horrible. Mm -hmm. But there was enough in it that I would keep going with this one.
1: Yeah. The little I read on Maniac Cop 2, they said that it was slightly better than this one, the first. Yeah. so. I'd be interested to see if they added anything to the lore of it.
0: Yeah, I would slightly, 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 slightly recommend it. So, yeah, this is definitely middle of the road. There's nothing groundbreaking about it, but I didn't think it was God got awful. So, yeah, I'm going to give it two and a half, please,
1: gloves. All right.
0: So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at all80smoviespodcast, or tweet us at podcastall80s. Next week, as we continue our Splatter Cinema Month, we will continue our series with poltergeist starring craig t nelson joe Beth williams and heather o'rourke
1: we hope to join us again
0: have a totally great week everyone
1: you always take a leak with a gun in your hand it's a good way to blow your balls off thanks for staying up with us good night world